Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 124. Tough Tuscan Times and Boccaccio's Decameron. 1327 to 1348. I would like to start out this episode with a shout out to another podcast. Indeed, since we are now dealing with Florence in the 14th century and will be bringing them up to the 15th, this coincides with the Medici podcast by Chad Denton, where you can find a more in-depth look at the things we are going to cover more superficially. You can listen to the Medici podcast on all major podcast players. In the last episode, we brought Florence up well into the 14th century to the end of the sort of Signoria of Charles of Calabria in 1327. In the meantime, we saw how the arts, the guilds, grouping the professions, had made their way into the politics of what was considered the Republic of Florence, whose government took the name of Signoria. However, we must not be fooled into thinking that we are talking about a sort of proto-democracy with universal representation. The people in control represented a new sort of oligarchy, which were called the Arti Maggiori, the Greater Guilds, which also reflected the economic status of the city, i.e. which trades were more important. The major guilds were seven, and among these were the people involved in textiles, such as wool and silk makers and merchants, the bankers, who controlled all the lovely money coming in, the lawyers, notaries and judges, who dealt with the issues of the litigious Florentines, the doctors and apothecaries, and, of course, the merchants who traded all of the above back and forth. There were then five medium guilds, and finally nine minor. You can see a link to the various different guilds in the show notes. Every guild would have its own symbol, representatives, places to meet, and often even church to pray in. This didn't of course mean that the great families had disappeared. Indeed, those families were very much present and often part of the major guilds themselves. After the Cerchi and Donati of the Dante Ligieri period had faded away, other groups took centre stage, such as the Bardi, the Peruzzi, to which we can also add the Albizzi, just to name a few. We mentioned that the 50 or so years between the entrance of the arts into the halls of power in the 1280s and the end of the Signoria of Charles of Calabria had marked a sort of golden age for Florence. The city continued the dominance of Tuscany that had started in the 13th century and now controlled Fiesole, Prato, Pistoia and Arezzo without allowing those cities any representation. 
Incidentally, if you are travelling around Italy during the summer, the last two cities host great music festivals, and that is Pistoia Blues and Arezzo Wave. Now, bad times were coming. With the 1330s, and especially with the 1340s, things started to take a turn for the worse. First of all, the economy was hit. Things had already started heading south when King Edward III of England, heavily in debt with Florentine banks, decided to default on his loans, which triggered a series of bankruptcies. Between 1342 and 1346, the Bardi, Peruzzi, Acciaioli and Bonaccorsi all went under. Now, we mention these families, but as is often the case in economic crises, the very rich managed to find a way to stay afloat, and in this case, they turned to the age-old guaranteed investment, land, and moved towards becoming landed gentry. The medium and small fish suffered greatly from this crisis. In the emergency situation, the rulers of the city thought it wise to call someone external in, and the choice fell on one Gualtiero, Walter, Count of Brienne, and Duke of Athens, although Duke only in name, who was called to rule as Podesta in 1342. It did not take long at all for both parties, i.e. Walter on one hand and the Florentines of the major arts on the other, to realise that this was not going to work. The Florentines realised that Walter was going to try and do what he wanted, and even perhaps set up a hereditary rule over the Republic. Walter realised that the Florentine authorities were not going to let him do exactly that. As soon as he realised that the Popolo Grasso, the name given to the major arts, meaning the fat people, not that they were all fat of course, would not be allowing him to get his way, he tried to curry favour with the lower classes and was quite successful. Although, in the end, he was run out of town only 15 months after being nominated and would act as a negative example of tyranny in the face of the freedom of the Republic. With his departure, Walter of Brienne left in his wake a whole series of social tensions. Before we have a look at those, we need to talk a little bit about wool. We have mentioned before that among the major arts there were the wool makers, and we mentioned that all over Europe the nobles and the merchants would have worn the fine garments made with Florentine wool. This does not mean that everyone involved in the wool making process would have been a member of the richer elite. There are many phases involved in the preparation of wool, because before it goes onto the body of some rich person. Early phases of the production involve shearing, which is actually getting the stuff off of the sheep, fulling, which means preparing the wool by cleaning it and sorting it out into something that can be eventually be woven, and carding, which is cleaning and disentangling fibres. Now, these early stages of wool-making were performed by hired labourers who were often grouped under the label of CHOMPI, that's C-I-O-M-P-I. This comes from the Tuscan-Italian term CHOMPARE, which means to beat, since 
the beating of the wool was an early part of the fulling stage. To this day, if a Tuscan tells you Ticompo, it means it would be a good idea to beat a hasty retreat because they are expressing their intention to hit you. The rich factory owners and merchants had the power to keep the salaries of the chompi very low, leaving them in rather dire conditions. They were forced to work in unhealthy conditions and could not leave one employer for another due to the rules of the guild and were often deeply in debt and would be forced to work for one employer to work off said debt. Walter of Brienne had, as we said, carried favour with these lower classes and even allowed them to form their own guild of fullers and dyers. As soon as the duke had been sent away, however, the guild was abolished. This gave rise, starting in 1344, to the first public protests of the category. It was in 1345 that a carder by the name of Ciuta Brandini managed to organize the first real large-scale protest of the category, and this is seen as the first attempt at organizing workers in some form in history, a very early form of unions, if you will. Unfortunately, the movement did not receive much support from the other professional categories, and soon enough, Chuta was captured and executed by beheading. This, however, did not put an end to the struggle of the lower classes, and things would heat up quite a bit during the course of the century, as we will see. Having said this, the next event in Florence's run of bad luck did not regard social struggles between the classes, and it hit all of Europe indiscriminately. The Great Plague of 1348. For Florence, and for world literature in general, the plague is synonymous with the Decameron of Boccaccio. Although he is considered a famous Florentine, Giovanni Boccaccio was actually born in Paris to a Florentine father who was there for work as a merchant and an unknown mother. His father did recognize him and then took the young boy back to Florence. At the age of 15, he was sent to Naples to a branch office of the Bardi banking family to learn the accounting trade. The city of Naples perfectly reflected his character. It was lively, loud, and sensual. He was not good at accounting, but he was very good at other things. The first was partying, and the second was literature. He would go out and enjoy himself and then spend a good part of the night reading the classics and starting out trying his hand at writing. He would then go to work late the next day and be too tired to do anything useful and so he eventually got fired. In Naples, he met his first love who would become the muse for his writing whom he called Fiammetta, Little Flame. Like Beatrice for Dante and Laura for Petrarch, yet at the same time very different because Boccaccio's love for Fiammetta was very physical. She was most likely a noblewoman by the name of Maria, an illegitimate daughter of King Robert of Naples and the wife of another nobleman. Boccaccio hung around long enough to spend all of his money on her and then made his way back to Florence barely missing the reign of Joanna II, which he would have really enjoyed, and the presence of Petrarch himself in Naples. 
So it was that he was present in Florence in 1348 when the Great Plague hit the city. As in many cases with direct testimonies of the disease, it's hard to understand exact numbers. Boccaccio himself mentions the number of 100,000, but that would have meant the whole city being wiped out to the last man, woman and child, so more realistic estimates put the total number at around 50 to 60,000 dead. Still quite dramatic. It is estimated that in the city of Lucca, for example, the population went from around 50 or 40,000 down to only 7,500. It is from Boccaccio that we hear tell of scenes of people dropping dead in the street and being left there, even by their close family, for fear of being infected. He also tells dramatic tales of people keeping putrefying bodies hidden in their houses so that the neighbours would not set fire to them. He also tells us of how people attempted to escape the pandemic by seeking refuge high in trees or at the bottom of wells. It is the idea of fleeing from the plague that was the inspiration for his greatest work, the Decameron, which literally means a period of ten days in which seven young noblewomen and three young men escaped out of Florence into the woods and countryside. They spent their time walking and playing games, but in the hot afternoon sun they would relax and tell each other stories. Each of the young people had to tell one story per day to the others, thus creating a collection of 100 short stories, who would decide the topic and everyone had to tell a story relating to that topic. The result is a compelling set of stories full of energy and sincerity told in a fluid style that sometimes borders on the vulgar, such as the story of Mazetto, who manages to satisfy a whole convent of nuns with his manly attributes. The work gave Boccaccio popularity already in his lifetime, but also moral criticism that would weigh increasingly on his conscience. The plague also took away his fiammetta, which actually freed him from his obsession for her, and he went on to have two wives, many lovers, and most of all, cultivate his passion for prostitutes. He was not as involved in politics as Dante or Petrarch had been, but his friendly, sincere character and good humour made him a useful diplomatic envoy, and he was used by such families as the Ordelaffi of Forlì and Cesena and the Dapolinta of Ravenna, as well as the Pope himself. Boccaccio attempted to imitate the worldly gentleman Petrarch and force himself to live a more upstanding moral life and to deny his early life and literary style. This meant that he would never again write as he did with the Decameron. Perhaps if he had had Oscar Wilde around at the time, telling him that the only way to overcome temptation was to give in to it, the world would have seen more great works by Giovanni Boccaccio. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters. Starting from the second part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, 
Kevin, Marcelo P, Mark P, Marxist, Leninist, Sicilian, Mella, Michus, Porchus, Mike M, Neville, Niels, Paradise, Patricia K, Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, Rudy F, Scott L, Sean M, Shauna S, Shelby, Stephen, Tap, Dance, Down Under, and TO5. And the tippy-top, Maria Montessori, and Antelighieri Level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Renat, David, and of course, Sen. If you feel the desire, you may get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com via email, where you can share ideas, comments, just say hello, share some deep, deep philosophical realization that you've had, or whatever you want. You can also follow us on social media, and that is Facebook, Twitter, and I think I finally got a hang of Instagram. Indeed, it's good to see that little community growing, so get over there and look at all those lovely photographs. If you would like to contribute your own photographs of perhaps a holiday in Italy or something like that, I'll be very happy to share it and to obviously give you credit for it. On the website www.ahistoryofitaly.com you can click through to our support page and become a Patreon supporter. I'm just about to release a new episode called Toxic Masculinity and Scarves. So now is the time to become a Patreon supporter. Otherwise you can do that on regular good old PayPal for a one-off donation and in any case I would thank you very very much. Remember to go and try out the Medici podcast by Chad Denton. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.